Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with psychotherapist, poet, politician, and activist Larry Robinson with New School host Erwin Keller as they discuss reanimating the world, eco-psychology, mystery, and poetry. Welcome to the New School at Commonweal. Welcome to the Sonoma series. So glad to have all of you here um, in Katadi, the new hub of uh, everything. Um, and I'm so, uh, I'm so happy that Larry Robinson is joining us tonight. And uh, first of all, I'm going to just, if, uh, you know, for officialdom's sake, I'm going to give you an introduction to Larry, although I have a suspicion that most of the people here tonight won't really need it. But uh, people who are tuning in by podcast might. So um, let me uh, introduce. May I introduce you, Larry? You may. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, Larry is Larry Robinson is a psychotherapist, thinker, politician, and poet. As an eco psychologist, he works to shift our view of psychology from that of fixing a broken apparatus to that of witnessing and nurturing complex soul work. This soul work involves looking beyond our limited commercial culture and making use of nature, mythology, and storytelling to restore a sense of wholeness. Uh, Larry is a former mayor of Sebastopol and engages in political and social action, traveling the world to identify new ways of thinking and healing and translating them back into our culture. In Larry's view, awakening to healing, both personally and globally, requires an awakening to beauty. This view has made him both a poet and a lifelong purveyor of poetry. His spoken word poetry salons are famous, and his poetry lover's listserv, where he posts uncannily apt poetry every day, has more than 1,200 subscribers. His recent volume of poetry, here, Larry, you can spokesmodel that. Uh, his recent volume of poetry, Rolling Away the Stone, is available tonight after this conversation and is also available on Amazon.com. So welcome, Larry. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you all. Before we ask you to bring us in with a poem, um, I'm just curious how many of... Uh, how many of you are connected to Larry because of his political work, because of his city council? Okay, one, two, four, a handful of people. How many people here are um, connected to Larry through poetry? <laughs> okay. Um, and how many of you are patients of Larry? If you wouldn't mind standing up and... <laughs> So it seems to be that it is love of poetry that brought a lot of people here tonight um, and the chance to see you. How many people uh, from this poetry realm have actually never seen Larry face to face? Ah, yeah, so, okay. They want to see who it is that's, who it is that every morning when you're, when you're looking forward to a good morning of, of upset and worry and pressure, suddenly sends you a, pose, uh, a poem that makes you slow down. So for that, and on behalf of everybody else on the listserv, I want to thank you. So, Larry, would you like to bring us in with a poem today? I would. This is from William Stafford. It's called The Way It Is. I'm sure a lot of you know this one. <clears throat> Whether you've heard it or not, you probably know it. <laughs> he says, 
There is a thread you follow that goes among things that change, but it doesn't change. People wonder about the things you're pursuing, and you have to explain to them about the thread. But it's hard for others to see it. While you hold it, you can't get lost. Tragedies happen. People get hurt and die. You suffer, grow old. Nothing you do can stop times unfolding, but you never let go of the thread. And I think all of us have some sense of that thread in our lives, or else we wouldn't be here tonight, right? String theory. <laughs> String theory, yes. Um, I've only known you for a few years, and I don't think I've ever seen you without hearing you recite a poem. So, um, and we'll talk more about how, how that came to be the case for you, but I'm just curious, how do you... How do you choose a poem? How was it that William Stafford was the right poem for now? Are there poets that are more fun to memorize, more fun to say? Yes. Um, for me, a poem, it has, it has to be something that, um, that whose message connects with something that I am wrestling with or is wrestling with me. It has to feel good to the mouse. It has to um, be elegant in its expression. And I know there's a lot of different ways of looking at what makes good poetry and different opinions in that. For me, one of the things that makes a good poem is that it connects our lives to something bigger. And it also has to um, express it in the most succinct language. And that's what makes the difference between poetry and prose. With prose, you can just go on explaining things. With poetry, you have to find the simplest and shortest route to get there. And that may seem obscure to some people, but that's what the beauty of poetry is. I mean, Thoreau said that poetry is nothing but honest speech, and I think that's very true. In the poem you just read, <clears throat> what about it felt good to the mouth? Was that your phrase? Good yeah. to good, in the mouth, good to the mouth? Yeah, but that's what makes it um, possible for me to retain it. It's, it's, got, a, it's got a flow. Um, without jerky movements that, that break, the, um, break the mental flow. Um, and it's got to have rhythms that sustain, um, sustain the thought and the feeling. Does, does memorization come easy for you? No. No, it's a, um, it's a practice. Um, it's a practice I encourage everybody to take up, particularly if you don't find it easy. Um, well, one reason I encourage people to memorize poems, but be selective about the poems you commit to memory, because a good poem is medicine, it's a teacher, it's a companion, and when you're choosing medicine or a teacher or a companion, you want to be very selective. And um, 
So one of the, one of the criteria for me when I'm choosing a poem to memorize is there's some mystery to it, but something that just will not let me go. So some of the poems um, that I work with have been, um, they take up residence inside. I, think, I see some of you nodding. Some of you who have been coming to the salons and, and share this practice of, of heart heartfelt poetry, you know that it, it works on you at some very deep level. Tell, tell, the, tell the people at home about the salons. Well, for the last well, maybe 20 years, we've been holding salons several times a year um, in living rooms, 30 to 40 people, and the only rule is no reading. So it's not a... It's not a reading, it's not a competition, it's not a performance, it's a poetic conversation. And we encourage silence between the poems, but I'll usually start off with, with a theme, and the theme usually lasts about one or two poems. <laughs> but you, you always have to have a starting point. <clears throat> so we'll start off with one poem, and somebody else may think of another poem by that same poet, or there may be an image in that poem that strikes a chord um, in somebody else, and then they'll share a poem. I mean, I remember one salon, we had something like 17 poems in a row referencing birds. Hmm. So we were, on, we were on, on a bird roll. Another time there were, there were fish. Or it may be poems by Yeats or poems by, by Stafford, or it may just take a totally different turn. So it's a poetic conversation. You describe, you describe poetry as a, as a spiritual practice. I mean, what, what you just said about it has, to, it has to be bigger than you in some way. Um, the process, what is your process of, of learning a poem, and how does that feel like a practice to you? When a poem is reaching out to me, it feels like that. It, it's just calling me to be... Um, to take it in. I always start out reading it out loud um, again and again and again. And then I will put down the book that I'm trying to learn it from and recite the first line out loud until I have that solid. And then I'll recite the first and second lines until I have that, those down. And then the first, second, and third. Everybody's got a different way of doing it. Mine, mine is just to continue to add, um, add lines. And then when I can consistently, without an error, recite the entire poem, I'll go to sleep on it and um, forget it. Because I've learned that one of the important parts of the process of learning is forgetting. If you hold, if you've ever, if you remember being in college and cramming for that um, that exam, stayed up all night cramming that information in. Two days later, you remember nothing of it. It's important to let something drop down into the body, into the soul, and literally forget it, and then call it back up. 
then it becomes yours. And then you have to share it. And so then I find people that I can talk to. Well, Kay here in the audience and I, we're part of a, a, a traveling troupe of poetry reciters called Rumi's Caravan. And we gave a performance in Reading on Friday night. So Kay, Kay and I drove up together and there was a poem that I was still learning. So I recited it to her and that, having, having one other person listen to it um, kind of locks it in. And then you gotta use it. So I, this might be taking a step back in discussing this process, but why no reading? What's the, what is the difference in, in effect? I'm not sure how far back to go with this. I, I, <clears throat> well, I'm not going to go all the way back with it because I'm hoping we'll get there eventually in this conversation. <laughs> but when we do these oral tradition poetry salons, what we're really trying to do is restore the soul of the world through restoring the oral tradition of poetry. And... Well, Rumi said, advises us to start a large and foolish project, like Noah. And my large and foolish project is to restore the soul of the world through, the restore, through reviving the oral tradition of poetry. Now, what that means is I understand, and I think a lot of us do, that when... Our culture developed writing, um, reading and writing. It gave us tremendous ability to manipulate our physical universe and nature. It gave us a lot of control. Um, but that came at a cost. And the way the written word... Um, empowers us and disconnects us, is it allows us to abstract ourselves from the sensual world that we evolved to live in. And so we take it for granted that the world is um, out there and we are in here. And there's a fundamental... Um, ontological fallacy in that perception that is um, leading us to see the world as something, um, as a collection of objects. We deanimate the world, and by that, by deanimating, it means literally removing soul from the world. And then we see the world as something that is commodifiable that is exploitable and um, not something we are really a part of. So restoring the oral tradition is one of the ways that I am and a lot of us are trying to restore some of that, that wholeness and that integration and that sense of connectedness. I mean, there's a 
deep subject here that we may get yeah, into, we'll, we'll which is where eco-psychology comes Right, into. right. This is sounding a lot like, like what I've read that you've written around eco-psychology, and, and maybe we'll come back to that. I just want to know, how many, how many poems do you know? How many poems can you, <laughs> have you, have you learned to speak? It's I, not a contest, but... I haven't done an inventory lately, but a couple years ago, I counted about 200. But I, um, I have a friend who's got probably four or five times that. I'm just taking that in. You know, it's like I've spent, I've spent the past 40 years of my life knowing 26 lines of the Canterbury Tales. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot of us have the experience, our experience of poetry is very removed. It's in print, and if we ever had to speak it, it was required of us in school when we were children and wasn't a, and wasn't a transcendent experience. It didn't... Poetry, I had poetry ruined for me in high school and college because we dissect it and parse it and analyze it and abstract ourselves from it. Billy Collins has a poem where he talks about tying the poem to a chair and beating the meaning out of it with a rubber hose. <laughs> <laughs> and it kills it. Um, so we're, you know, as a species, we evolved to sit around the fire telling stories, singing songs. This is where poetry came from. It didn't start with a written page. We've got to bring it back by lifting it off of the page. And so it wasn't until about 25 years ago when I heard um, my dear friend and teacher, Doug Von Koss, reciting a poem that he had learned by heart that something just exploded in my heart hearing it. I thought wow, I get it now. And that's when I made the commitment to start, start learning poems. Let me share the poem that, that oh, he yeah, please, recited please. That, um, that touched me. It's Robert Creeley's a very short, simple one. He says, love comes quietly, finally, drops around me, on me, in the old way. What did I know, thinking myself able to go alone all the way? When you hear a poem that has been committed to memory, taken into the body, there's a reason why we talk about memorization as learning by heart. Because you <laughs> take it into the core, and when it emerges, it carries something of the soul with it. And that's what makes it apprehensible. So I encourage you, when you read poetry, read it out loud to yourselves. Read it out loud to your children and your grandchildren and your lovers and to your trees and your pets. It's only since I've met you that I've done that, <laughs> that I've taken to reading poetry aloud. Also here at Nerslum, we have poets. We have Sally Churgel, who is our... Poet laureate of the synagogue. Wonderful Robin, poet. Robin Birdfeather writes poetry. Um, Barbara Lesh McCaffrey writes poetry. We have a lot of people that are that are um, that poetry comes through. Um, but it was since I met you that that I started reading it aloud. But the memorizing that it terrifies it just terrifies me. And and the um, and the salon that you describe sounds both 
luminous and um, completely agonizing. Well, let me make something else very clear that I didn't. Not everybody who comes to the salons recites. There are some people who have been coming for years and years and years who have never said a word, and that's totally fine. There's no obligation for anyone to share. Because listening is just as important as speaking. So seeing you as um, a person, uh, uh, an adult with so many accomplishments, with so many interests, and this overarching theme of, of poetry, I'm curious who you were as a kid. And I know that's a, a broad question, but, what, but if you could tell us maybe a little bit about what you were like and maybe connect that to, you know, what was the piece of little Larry that could grow into being somebody who knows 200 poems? Well, that poem that I began with about the thread, um, I think describes my experience. There is a thread that I have always felt in my life, although there have been certainly been times when my connection to that thread has gotten so thin that it's almost broken. Um, and uh, well, I will say that the time in my life where I almost lost it when is the time in my life where my primary focus was earning money. And getting that close to losing the thread was so um, distressing and alarming that it transformed my life and brought me into poetry and into soul. And um, sometimes you have to lose things or almost lose things to see the value. So... Um, I think I've always um, been a closet mystic. As, as a young child, some of my earliest memories are simply of lying on the ground looking up at the sky, both in the day and the night, and feeling both my connection and um, my belongingness and my tininess. And I grew up um, in a small housing tract in, in Tiburon in the, in the late 40s and early 50s that was surrounded by open space. So my childhood playground was these open hills. And in one of these, um, one of these hills, there is a grotto or a spring um, that had a bay tree and an oak tree and a shell mound. And there was a rock there with some um, Miwok um, petroglyphs. And that was a magic place for me. I, <clears throat> a place I did not... My friends and I would go to other places there, but I, when I discovered this place, I did not 
um, I didn't take anybody else there because it was my private place. I, sitting in that place, um, I always had the sense that if I could just do something right, I didn't know what it was, think a certain way or move the rocks around a certain way, I could step through into something that I didn't know. But looking back on it, I knew, I, I know now that there was a numinosity there that I didn't have the language to express. And when I tried to tell family and friends about it, I get this baffled look. So I learned very early to keep that in the closet. Um, and it really wasn't until many years later that um, that I could find the language and the and the context for it. But that that's part of the thread that runs through it for me. But you began giving yourself tools pretty pretty early. I think you you began meditating. How old were you when you started meditating? Um, Twenty. And what was that? What was that journey? What were you doing, and what did you end up doing? Well, like many of us, it began with um, controlled substances, <laughs> um, mostly LSD and, and mescaline. And my first experiences of those were um, absolutely transcendent. And I had this, like many of you, I imagine, this idea that if I just did it enough. Um, I could stay there, mm. and it took me a while to figure out that's not going to happen. <laughs> um, but then I started finding literature, Buddhist and, and Hindu um, and Sufi literature, that talked about the experience or described the same kind of experiences that I was having in, in a different context, and I realized that People have been doing it, and there is a technology to transform our experience and to actually um, touch that, that other world and draw sustenance and vision and inspiration from it. So that's when I, I started looking around to different spiritual practices and um, in my early 20s, I lived in an ashram in India. Um, and probably around mid-80s, uh, no, excuse me, mid-70s, I discovered uh, Zen Buddhism and Vipassana practice, which had been um, my core practice since. You practice every day? You meditate every day? Yes. 40 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes a night. And then you hit send on the poem of the day. <laughs> After my meditation, I'll spend an hour, about an hour a day with poetry in one way or another. And the poem that speaks loudest to me that day is the one that I, that I send. So you do the, the curating on the day, which is why it always feels like you're touching some, something that we're all feeling. Yes. There are some exceptions. When I travel... Um, because I, I want to keep keep the poems going even when I'm somewhere else in the world. So I will 
load a bunch of potential poems onto my iPad that I can choose from to send on that day, but I don't have my whole poetry. Yeah, we all know when you're traveling, the poems seem really inauthentic. Um, (laughs) I love this thing about, uh, you know, having the transcendent experience and and then having to... Once you've experienced it, you have to do the hard work. You have to do the practice around it. There's a, there's a Hasidic teaching about, um, uh, you know, the, the Hasidim were ecstatics. Yes. And sometimes people would have these really, really high experiences. And the Rebbe's who were sort of um, the, trying to um, find a path through all of this for all of their followers had to, had to deal with what is it when somebody says, I, I had this, I saw God or I was completely in in union with God, and I want to do that again. And there's a teaching that one of the Rebbe's gave that that when you have that flash of experience, that transcendent high, that it's like being in the marketplace at a stall that sells sweets, that there is always a free sample. And you get the one free sample. And after that, you have to pay for it. You're listening to a conversation with Larry Robinson and Erwin Keller. That's beautifully said, yes. And then eventually you learn that that ecstatic experience is not what it's all about at all. It's really about living right here, right now. And then there is no difference between heaven and earth. I want to I wanna talk to you about eco-psychology, but... but Listening to you talk this way makes me want to ask you how the hell you ended up in politics. Because I think we all experience politics as being the world that you describe, the world that, as it is written, the world that we're at distance from. So, um, and I can understand, I, have a, I can understand what you might want to achieve through it, but what enabled you to take that step into it? Somewhere in the mid-90s, A number of my friends who were also practicing psychotherapy and were very um, connected to the earth. Shepard back there is, is one of these people. We started meeting regularly to try to imagine what, um, a psychology as if the earth mattered might be. And we can go back more steps into why that's important in a moment. But um, so we didn't have the word eco-psychology at that time. But then Ted Rozak um, wrote a book called Eco-Psychology. And, and Mary, um, oh, Mary Allen, Marian Allen, that gave us the word eco-psychology as a, as a frame for it. In 1995, I think, I, was, I taught um, a course in eco-psychology at, at Sonoma State. And, and I was writing for psychology um, newsletters and things, encouraging psychotherapists to take the world seriously and not internalize um, the world's problems Um, but to place our emotional 
and psychological distress in the context of the suffering of the planet and the suffering of humanity and the suffering of our greater community of life. And so I was preaching all these things to other therapists and to my students. And um, at a certain point, um, I fell into a profound depression. And one thing I know about depression is if it's not a biochemical imbalance, it's a loss of soul. And... um, And when soul drops down, there's an invitation to follow it. I mean, you can either dive down deliberately or you can fall down. And I would, it's safer and you have a little bit more um, maneuverability if you're in a diving position. (laughs) So um, I spent most of that winter... um, and some pretty deep meditation with the question, what is, what is this about? And the answer that, that came very clear was, you're not living your truth, Larry. And then my question was, well, what, what am I supposed to be doing? And I thought I was going to hear something like, you need to meditate more. You need to do more retreats. Um... Instead, what I heard was, run for city council, Harry. (laughs) (laughs) Not what I wanted to hear. But if you know what I'm talking about with that thread and listening to that voice, which we... You and I were talked about as the daimon. You know that if you ignore that voice, pretty soon things start going very bad in your life. Well, my bargaining um, mind said, well, the voice says I have to run. It doesn't say I have to win. (laughs) (laughs) And despite your best efforts. Despite my best efforts, I did win. Um, And then I had had to educate myself around public policy and land use and transportation issues and uh, financing public, um, you know, tax issues, everything. Yeah. Um, but I also realized, took me a while to get this one, that um, what I was really supposed to do was not so much shift policy as to try to bring some soul into the political process. Mm -hmm. And I have many wonderful friends who are in elected office who um, have wonderful hearts and are absolutely committed to the values um, that that I share but don't have the same kind of spiritual grounding. And I saw that there's something missing. And I see that so many people who have been doing the inner work tend to avoid politics because they're afraid that it will pollute them or compromise them. 
and what um, what I wanted to say and what I want to say still is if the people who we want to have in politics don't do it, if they don't want to get their hands dirty, what we're left with are narcissists and, and sociopaths, which is quite frankly what, what we're seeing for the most part. And it's our fault if we're not jumping in there. I mean, it's, it's not the fault of the narcissists and the sociopaths that they're drawn to where there's power. It's the fault of the other people who, who aren't, um, aren't willing to get their hands dirty. There's um, work that I've seen you do to try to bring together uh, some of your spiritual values with public policy. And uh, I'm thinking of your visit to uh, your visits to Bhutan, and the the concept of gross national happiness. And I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about GNH, a little bit about the trip, and about Certainly. what applicability you might see here in our <clears throat> politics. Sure. Um, Bhutan, for those of you who don't know, Bhutan is a, a tiny country in the Himalayas between India and and China with a population of about 700,000. It's a hereditary kingdom that has only been open to the outside world um, really two generations. And um, I've led a couple of trips there. Some of the people in this room were on our, our last trip. Um, When Bhutan began to open to the outside world, it's, it's, a, it's a, a Buddhist kingdom. Vajrayana Buddhism is the, is the deep um, cultural tradition there. The king saw what had been happening with neighboring countries of Nepal, Sikkim, Ladakh, and how the development model of the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund um, devastated the local economy, the culture, and the environment. And he did not want that to happen to Bhutan. So he initiated the process of the transition to a parliamentary democracy. And ironically, you know, it was a royal decree that started the process over the objections of the people. <laughs> because they're... They had a benevolent monarch who really cared about the well-being of the country and the people. But he said, you may love me and what I do now, but there's no guarantee about a future king. So one of the other things he decreed was that they, were, they would measure their progress by gross national happiness. And originally that was kind of a... Um, semi-serious riff on gross um, national product. And gross national product, as you know, is, is how most advanced economies measure how they're doing, which is simply the, the sum total of all economic activity. If you have lots of car accidents and, and wars and things, your GNP is up and you're doing great. Um, so... 
people there took that seriously. And they, when they developed their constitution, they enshrined the notion of gross national happiness as the national development paradigm. And the four pillars of that are good governance, equitable economic development, cultural sustainability, and environmental protection. And it's kind of like California's Environmental Quality Act. Whatever you, whatever you propose as a project has to pass through a filter of, of these four standards. And if it's not going to lead to happiness, you can't do it. So every two years, they do a census where they track how they're doing. And there's you know, criteria in, in each of these categories for measuring that. So my um, not-too-hidden agenda in leading these tours to Bhutan is to introduce people to a country that is actually um, implementing a very different but very practical and holistic and spiritual approach to development. And it's directly related to the Vajrayana um, Buddhist tradition um, because the core understanding of Buddhism is that everything in the universe is absolutely connected to everything else and everything depends for its existence utterly on everything else. Something I think we all know intuitively. But... The Gross National Happiness Project grows directly out of this and out of the, the ideal for a human being, which is the bodhisattva, which is the being who lives for, with and for all other beings. I, I hear you, I hear you um, talking about this model as something that we can, that we can use. We can bring to the United States, or we can create other models that, that defy the, a pure economic approach to success and to happiness. And I think about how much I don't want to engage in that. Like, I think about how much um, I feel like all is lost already. And um, I'm not saying that all is lost already, but how much I walk around with that feeling. And... Um, and I hear you talking, and I think this is a man who has hope. And I want to know if you think of yourself as hopeful, and if not, what keeps you moving forward with this kind of vision? And I ask you that not just out of curiosity, but because I want some of that. That's a good question. I'm not sure it's hope. Um, faith is maybe a better word. Hope, for me, um, implies an imagined outcome, imagined um, happy ending. And I know the story never ends. It, it always goes on to something else. But faith, to me, is a trust in what's happening. That even when I don't understand it or it doesn't seem to be going where I think it ought to go, as Desiderata says, things are un the universe is unfolding as it should. When I, uh, I read a lot of history, and I look for deep patterns 
And in psychology, I look for patterns. And I look for connection patterns that um, iterate at the individual level, at a cultural level, at a planetary level. And when uh, seeing these patterns is how I put things into context. And the bigger picture that I see of what we're going through right now is a developmental crisis. As an infant development, um, a child goes through certain predictable stages of relationship to the mother. The first stage is a symbiotic one where there is no difference between the mother and child. And at the next stage, and I'm describing a healthy developmental process, this is a stage of differentiation where the mother and child begin to feel differences between them. Um, but there's always a checking in with each other to make sure, is it really okay? Am I okay? You know. um, and then there's a stage called practicing where um, the child is doing his or her own thing, whatever it is, and the mother's in another room, but they're aware of each other. And then what's happening there is the development of um, a certain level of autonomy, which is what a healthy individual has to develop. And the next stage is what they call rapprochement. It's a coming back together um, to form a relationship that is not collapsing back into this undifferentiated mass. Okay, so that's, that's a pattern that we have all been through as individuals. We go through similar stages of that at different, different levels as we get older. Our relationships go through a very similar, similar pattern. I believe that as a species, we are engaged in one of these developmental um, processes. Before we had writing, before we had agriculture, as a species, we were absolutely dependent on and subject to the forces of nature. We were like the infant with the mother. And then we began this 10,000 years so far process of differentiation from the mother. This is the process that Joseph Campbell describes in his book, The Hero's Journey. And the hero's, the hero's journey, as you may remember, is the story of the... Armando's writing a book about it, in fact. <laughs> um, the young person is called away from the home, family, community to go off on an adventure, and all kinds of things happen. There's certain predictable elements of this story in every culture. But ultimately... He or she slays the dragon or finds the gold or um, rescues the maiden or whatever it is. But there's is transformed in the process. And so this is really the story of differentiation. 
And this is, this is the point that we are at as a culture. But that's only half the story. And this is what is so critical for us to remember at this time. We're so focused on success and exploration and achievement. We're even talking about colonizing other planets um, as if we are somehow separate from this planet and not simply an expression of it. I, f I find that um, an absurdity in, in the truest sense of the word. But the hero in, in the story then begins the journey home, which is just as fraught, just as perilous as the outward journey. But if the hero does return successfully, he or she brings some element of healing back to the community. Here's another Stafford poem. Good. <laughs> it's time for all the heroes to go home now, <laughs> if they have one. Time for us common ones to locate ourselves by the real things we live for. Far to the north, or indeed in any direction, strange mountains and creatures have always lurked. Elves, goblins, trolls, and spiders. Once we have tasted the gold, touched the far stream, found some limit beyond the waterfall, a season passes and we come home, changed, but safe, quiet, grateful. Suppose some insane wind holds all the hills while strange beliefs whine at the traveler's ears. We ordinary beings can cling to the earth and love where we are, sturdy for common things. You know, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey describes that whole cycle. The Iliad is the outward journey and the battle. And then the Odyssey just so exquisitely lays out the roadmap for what we have to go through to get home again. And I won't go on into all that, but I, I highly encourage everybody to read um, the Odyssey. There's a wonderful translation, new translation that came out about... 15 years ago, Fagel's translation. <clears throat> but anyway, um, this is a long way of saying, I believe that we are at that point where we have, we're either going to achieve escape velocity and go off into oblivion, or we're going to make that turn and come back on a long journey of healing and restoration back into relationship with our mother earth not as dependents but as not as owners either but as partners so that to me is the work of eco psychology and part of that includes using our diagnostic skills to identify um pathologies that are they're acting and 
the narcissist, my diagnosis for our culture at this point is the narcissistic personality disorder. I mean, isn't it perfect that um, we have the ultimate narcissist, um, the front runner in, in the Republican um, primaries? The three thumbnail diagnostic criteria for narcissistic personality disorder are a sense of entitlement to, distance from, and superiority to. Doesn't that describe our relationship to the earth, our relationship to our greater community of of beings? And it's an attachment disorder. That can be healed by rebuilding the connections and the attachments. And this is um, where the work that the people like, like Sarah do of bringing people back to the land, to feel it directly, to listen to it, to speak to it, and, and love it. That's, that's what we need to do. What is the role of, of these kinds of archetypal stories in the work of eco-psychology in, on an individual level, not on a cultural level? Well, the stories... Um, two things. The stories help us to understand the context Um, but when we see the story that is that we are unconsciously acting out we have the possibility of changing the story Joanna Macy um, wonderful Buddhist teacher and systems thinker talks about the three tasks that we're faced with right now one is to create the alternative structures and organizations and technologies that we're going to need on the other side of the needle that we're going through. Another is to slow down the destruction, to buy time. And the third Mm -hmm. is to change the consciousness, which is another way of saying changing the narrative, changing the story. The story that we have been living is that we are separate from the earth, that we, that, um, that we own it, and that we're um, exiled from it. I mean, there's an interesting paradox, but um, the book of Genesis talks about our being exiled from the garden, but it also talks about us having dominion over, over it. <clears throat> but it doesn't talk about partnership. Let me tell you another story. Okay, and then I have a Jewish answer for that. Okay, thank you. Because I know, I know, well, that's part, that's part of, there is a new story emerging, which is actually the older story, which I think. Right, this is an insight that I got from Rabbi Arthur Wasco, um, who was the founder of the the Freedom Stater, et cetera, um, that he shared the week before last at a teaching that I was at, and he talked about the exile from the garden and about that as as being um, displaced and being um, distanced from our connection to the earth. And he set up, uh, sort of textually, as the medicine for that, Song of Songs, where um, the, the garden is reinvented as a place where love where eros happens yeah where the lovers meet and the lovers are equal to each other yeah. in their desire yeah and um and it's a place um filled with the desire to 
um, to be surrounded by love in this um, environment of, of growth. So I want to offer that. That you know, one of the one of the things that I hear from you, and I've heard it from so many—not so many, but from some really wonderful thinkers recently—is just the how sort of um, the way in which we can use some of our stories to create. You know, we 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 know this hero's journey, um, we know this Eden story, but what is the medicine for the Eden story? Do we have to? Are there are there are there stories within the tradition that we can bring? We, that's, that is the work we all need to do, is find those stories and tell them to each other. They're there. There's another story I want to tell which talks about our dilemma. It's, it's an old Greek story that Ovid retells in his um, long poem, The Metamorphoses. It's a story of Erisichthon. And Erisichthon is um, a wealthy king who makes his living um, making charcoal and selling it. <clears throat> so he and his crew are out in the woods one day cutting, cutting trees, and they come across an oak tree. It's the biggest tree that any of them have ever seen, and his men instantly recognize this tree as sacred to the goddess Demeter, who's a goddess of abundance and, and fruitfulness of the earth. And they refuse to cut it. In fact, his foreman puts his arms around the, the tree and says, don't anybody harm this tree. And Erisichthon is disgusted with him and enraged with their, um, their recalcitrance. So he swings his axe, cuts the foreman's head off, proceeds to cut into the tree, which bleeds human blood. And as the tree falls, the dryad, the nymph of the tree, calls out, to her sisters in her agony, and they spread word to the goddess who's outraged by this blasphemy. So she calls in a favor from Famine, who lives in a far-off land. So Famine comes and visits Erisichthon in the night and enters his body. When he wakes up, he's hungry, so he calls for food. So he eats. But this is a peculiar kind of hunger. It seems that the more he eats, the hungrier he gets. Consumes everything in his palace. Winds up selling his children into slavery, consuming his own body. That's our story, isn't it? We've severed that connection to the earth. We've severed our connection to the sacred. And we're consumed by a hunger that knows no bounds, and the more we feed that hunger, the hungrier we get. We can fill it with iPhones and drugs and alcohol and sex and power, and we want more. You're listening to a conversation with Larry Robinson and Erwin Keller. Is there a story that's medicine? <laughs> Good poems are medicine. Love is medicine. Touching the earth is medicine. Gardening is medicine. Environmental restoration is medicine. Going out into the Laguna and picking up the trash. Maybe it's a good moment for another poem. I'm wondering about the compass rose. (laughs) If it's on the playlist. 
Actually, I want to do a different one. Good. Okay. <clears throat> because you were asking about hope, and I was talking about patterns and cycles. This, this is one that helps put things into context for me. This, it's from Sophocles. It's the oldest poem I know, mm -hmm. 2,500 years ago. It's a modern translation by great Irish poet Seamus Heaney. Um, it's from his translation of the Philoctetes. He says, human beings suffer. They torture one another. They get hurt and get hard. No poem or play or song can fully right a wrong inflicted and endured. The innocent in jail beat on their bars together. The soldier's widow faints in the funeral home. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up and hope and history rhyme. So hope for a great sea change on the far side of revenge. Believe that further shore is reachable from here. Believe in miracles and cures and healing wells. Call that miracle self-healing, the utter self-revealing double take of feeling. If there's fire on the mountain and lightning and storm and a God speaks from the sky, it means someone is hearing the outcry and the birth cry of new life at its term. Life just keeps bubbling up. You know, Carl Jung used to say his favorite story was of this magic healing spring that arose in the desert somewhere. And pilgrims would come and drink this water and be healed until somebody got the bright idea, hey, let's put a fence around it and charge for it. <laughs> and then after a while, the water began to lose its healing properties, but they still charged for it. <laughs> Meanwhile, Somewhere else in the desert, another spring is arising. That's, for me, that's what faith is, is that spring that will always keep arising. And life, life is what we are. I mean, we're, we're in this, in the midst of the sixth great extinction. And we may be part of it. We're seeing species dying around us and we may go with them and I grieve this I mean I cry most days when I see what we're losing the beauty and the diversity of life that we're losing but where I take comfort is remembering that what we are is life we were dinosaurs for 125 million years we have been bacteria for, <laughs> what, three billion? So what we are arises in complexity and falls and arises in complexity and falls. And it seems that with, with each spasm of extinction, the next flourishing of life is even more abundant 
That's where I take hope. I mean, I'm still committed to doing absolutely everything I can to avert the calamity that, that we see happening. And I think we might actually, I think we, we might have a chance to do it. And my life is absolutely committed to making that transition. But if that's not what's going to happen, life will continue no matter what. That's my faith and what comforts me. You're a wonderful teacher. I don't know how much you know that. Um, If we are your students sitting around you today, what would you suggest we take with us into the next into the next um, leg of our journey. Before you can know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all that must go so you know how great the desolate landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you can know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak with it until your tongue grips the thread of all sorrow and you see the full size of the cloth. Then you know it is only kindness that means anything anymore. Only kindness that wakes you in the morning and sends you out in the world to purchase bread and mail letters. Only kindness that lifts its head from the crowd of the world to say, It is I you have been looking for all your life and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. And just something about the etymology of the word kindness. Kindness means recognizing that we are all of a kind. It's recognizing kinship. Kinship with all of life. Whose poem? Naomi Shihab Nye. I want to open, open this up for questions, but to save a little time for us to come back, we are going to do a poem together. Um, not Canterbury Tales. <laughs> um, and uh, and maybe, maybe also you would do a poem of your own. So why don't we just take maybe uh, 10 minutes or so for some questions. You haven't talked about the pottery you make. The question is, you haven't <laughs> talked about your pottery. What, is it, what does it feel like? What does it mean to you to make these beautiful blue two-tone uh, creations? Like poetry, pottery came into my life as an unexpected gift much more recently. Um, I now spend probably 15 or 20 hours a week making bowls and cups and mugs and the magic of taking a shapeless piece of clay and opening it up 
into something that becomes something useful and maybe even beautiful is I'm still absolutely fascinated mm. with that. Um, the core teaching of Buddhism is contained in a sutra called the Heart Sutra. An essential piece of that is form is emptiness, emptiness is form, which I won't go into now, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's one of those treasures that you just live into more and more deeply as you work with it. But working with clay um, is, to me, just the most perfect, um, sensual, tangible expression of the Heart Sutra. Poetry and pottery there, practically anagrams, <laughs> except that pottery has the additional T for Terra, for the Earth. Oh, beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> um, Robin. Uh, Larry, I wonder if you incorporate in your writings and thinkings Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Because I had the wonderful chance to teach at the eco-psychology thing at SSU, sit in for, I forget who, I forget his name, maybe he's here. And I asked, I had asked him before I went, before we even got into this agreement, are you teaching about the human body? Because that's an area that I'm pretty good at. No, he says. He said, oh, really? <laughs> Where do you think we come from? Anyway, uh, I ended up using Maslow's hierarchy of needs as a way to show the difference between uh, basic needs that everybody should have. And of course, I think the pyramid got added onto by uh, other people at the top. But uh, I find that a very useful symbol even, and uh, a kind of a stair-stepping way to know, oh, if we can have stability at the bottom, which would be economic justice and a whole lot of things that go with it, you know, then some people jump right up there and they don't have the bottom. And I, my heart goes out to their courage. <laughs> but I'm just wondering if you use that. Well, I um, retired from my practice 11 years ago, so I don't, I don't do any of that anymore. I don't see any, but... <clears throat> Well, Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Project really embodies that. You know, the, what, they, what I described as the four pillars of good governance, environmental protection, uh, cultural sustainability, and shared economic development is the basis. They, they understand that that does not... Um, that that's not happiness in itself, but it provi provides the basis on which... Um, Without that, it's very hard to, to be happy. They, <clears throat> Buddhism understands that happiness is our natural state, but if we are living in a degraded environment, if we're living um, in oppression, if, our, um, if we don't have enough to eat or a good shelter, um, it's very hard to realize our, our true natural state of happiness. So it, it dovetails beautifully with that, yeah. Uh, not so much a question as a comment. 
I bought one of Larry's cups at an event in Sebastopol. And I'm a total caffeine freak, and this is a nice big cup, and it's thick. It's heavier and larger than the one I used to use. And since I've been drinking out of that cup, my writing has improved. <laughs> what a testimony. <laughs> I didn't pay him to say that. So if you paint or you write or anything, get one of his cups. <laughs> Did you bring any tonight to sell, Larry? No, but I'll put in a plug for um, Hand Goods and Occidental and the Made Local Marketplace in Santa Rosa. <laughs> Another question? Yeah. yeah. It's, again, it's more of a comment than a question, but it, it, thank you so much. Yeah. And, you know, it, just in the room, I'm sorry I was a bit late, I got lost. Um, you know, I have cried since I've been here, and I laughed deeply, and I feel my soul renewed listening to what you're saying, which is what I feel at the salon. And, you know, we all get different homework assignments from God, different work, right, soul work, and mine is working with really, really hurt people. So I work with homeless people. And one of my great, you know, heart's desires is to bring more vulnerable people into the gorgeous magic of this room, right? Because mm -hmm. it's still just us here, right? Mm -hmm. Our tribe. And I wanted to just say that often after I've spent a day doing system navigation with somebody who's been outside for many years, all the people I work with have severe persistent illness, because that's how people get caught outside. I will often read poetry at the end of our day to them. Yeah. So I'll read a Rumi or a Hafiz, and it is medicine. And so, I don't know how to say it, but like people that we consider as other are healed by this as well. And I just wanted the chance to say that in the room. And your work in our community has brought me, has let these words live in me. So I wanted to say that. Well, thank you. Um, I've always wondered how one measures most national happiness. <laughs> is there a way to find out how to measure? Yes. The question is: uh, is there a is there a proper measure for gross national happiness? Yes. For each well, how well there is actually uh, the movement has spread around the world. Um, the state of Maryland actually has adopted. Um, a, a measure um, or a, an, a process for measuring happiness beyond just economic activity. Um, Great Britain is initiating a project like that. Um, my hope is for Sonoma County to adopt um, an official set of indices that will that we can use as a shorthand for where we're going. You know, what you measure um, is what you pay attention to. And what you pay attention to is where you go. So developing appropriate metrics for our community would be a very good place to start. Bhutan has, they have a, a government department of gross national happiness. 
And on our, in our trips to Bhutan, we meet with officials from, from that department, as well as with lamas teaching. Stuff. But um, the census that they do every two years is based on um, a set of measurable indices within each of those categories. I can't recall what, what they are specifically, but you can... Uh, research on Google Bhutan's Gross National Happiness Project or go to their official government site and you'll be able to, to get the details of that. Yes. Um, thank you for your work. I um, work in arts education and I did a project in Hunters Point at school with third grade kids uh, bringing a photographer and a poet in together. So we gave the kids this week before digital disposable cameras and had them go based upon the work of a woman named Wendy Ewald who travels around the world and gets children to photograph and write. And um, it was pretty extraordinary to, um, first they were to go and take pictures of their dreams, their families, their friends, whatever. Half the kids lost the camera, so we brought it back to campus where they took pictures of each other's hairdos and shadows and <coughs> favorite places. And then with those photographs, then we brought a poet in to have them write poetry mm. around it. And at the end of the project, we gave them each a book that had two pages of each of their work beautiful. all together. So they were poets and wow. photographers. And the poets were, the poetry was pretty hard um, about loss. They came from projects and stuff. But the, um, the smile on their face when they read the poetry, that it's a really important yeah. healing of the arts in terms of what you're saying with ceramics. And I just wanted you to know, since I was a kid, I used to memorize poems all the time. At every friend's wedding, I can still recite the owl in the Christmas <laughs> <laughs> So it's, it's in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Well, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, look. I guess I just find it very ironic in a certain way when you were talking about the oral tradition and how important it is, and yet you send us a poem every day, electronically written out, you know, and we were able to have, have that poem. And uh, for me, it's been a wonderful gift every morning to wake up to. Do you suggest that daily when we get the poem, we should say it out loud? That would be a, that would be a wonderful thing to do. And I... I would never want to give up our um, ability to read and write. What I want to do is augment it with what we have lost. Should we do a poem? <laughs> Certainly. I feel, like, I feel like Carol Burnett and Julie Andrews here. Hey, let's do a... Before we do that, can I put in a plug for Rumi's Caravan? Yes, please. <laughs> for those of you who don't know... Um, there's an event we've been producing for the last 15 years um, called Rumi's Caravan, which is an evening of poetry in the ecstatic tradition. And it's, it's hard to describe, but it's, it's, an even, it's a magical evening. And um, it will be, well, all proceeds are a benefit for the Center for Climate Protection, which is a local organization I serve on the board of, which is committed to finding local solutions to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But what Rumi's, oh, you can't see this, but. 
there's some more of these. Um, but it will be February 6th at the Glazer Center. And if you want to get um, more information about it, you can talk to me afterwards or um, just go or two people here will raise their hands. <laughs> there's an afternoon matinee with music. Yes, now. yes. There's an afternoon. There's a matinee and a Persian feast, and then an evening performance. So that's enough for my commercial. One. Well, I, there's something else I want to say about your speaking of poetry, and um, that is that Larry and I also um, are both on the board of trustees of Meridian University, which is based in Petaluma, and um, every board meeting that we have. Um, begins and ends with a poem that's either given over by Larry or by Rebecca. And, um, and it's made me very aware of the way in which this, this oral tradition of poetry can change the tenor of any kind of conversation. I mean, it's not a contentious bunch. It's not like we're <laughs> sitting around fighting until somebody offers a poem. But there is a way that the, the giving over of a, po of a poem hoists us out of the everydayness of the conversation and brings us to sort of a higher vantage point, not just of, uh, of, of the poem itself, but of all the work we're doing and where we fit into the world and where we fit into our, um, uh, the trajectory towards a future that we want to see. And just the simple act of a poem happening at the beginning and at the end does that for us. It creates almost a check-in, like is the work that we have been doing in these conversations worthy of this higher level of vision? And that's something that I've really come to appreciate through what you and Rebecca bring to the trustees of Meridian University. And I also wanna, wanted to say that out loud because the, um, the effects, the, uh, the benefits of being able to speak poetry really are so much greater and also so much more immediate than you might guess. And so I wanted to encourage people to jump on this, not the roomy caravan, but the roomy bandwagon, and, uh, and begin doing uh, some of that for the benefit of all of the communities that we live in and work in. And anybody can learn a poem. Start with just a two-line poem or four lines. And we will see if that's true in a moment, because Larry challenged me to do this. So uh, do you want to so, tell about this? What are we going to do? We're doing the Amichai? Oh, right. <clears throat> Will we be alternating lines? Well, or, uh, maybe or, all in English and then all in Hebrew. Oh, excellent. OK, yes. Would you like that? Yes. Um, you want to explain who Yehuda Amichai is? So Yehuda Amichai was an Israeli poet. Um, who, um, who wrote really very luminous poetry, um, very human and very lofty at the same time, and um, in a way that sort of questioned all ideology from, from all directions, um, was very aware of the, the myth-making properties of history. Well, I'll add, too, that he's a war hero turned peace activist. An Arab shepherd is searching for his goat on Mount Zion. And on the opposite mountain, I'm looking for my little boy, an Arab shepherd and a Jewish father, both in their temporary failure. Our voices meet above the sultan's pool in the valley between us. Neither of us wants the boy 
or the goat to get caught in the wheels of the terrible Hadagadia machine. Afterward, we found them among the bushes, and our voices came back inside us laughing and crying. Searching for a goat or a son has always been the beginning of a new religion in these mountains. Roe Aravi Mechapes Gdi Bahar Zion Ubahar Mimur Anim Chapeset Bni Hakatan Roe Aravi Vaav Yehudi Bechishlonam Hazmani Kolotsh Nenu Nifkashim Meali Vrechata Sultan Baemek Baemtsa Shnenu Rotsim Shelo Yikanes Haben O Hagdi Letoch Tahalich המכונה הנוראה של חד גדיה. אחר כך מצאנו אותם בין השיחים, וקולותינו חזרו אלינו, ובחו וצחקו בפנים. החיפושים אחר גדי או אחר בן היו תמיד התחלת דת חדשה בהרים האלה. Wonderful to hear that in Hebrew. Thank you. You did it. Would you... Just to close us out, Larry, just to close us out, would you give us a poem of your own? This one is dedicated to anybody who's ever gotten discouraged and come to believe that your actions don't matter. Ecclesiastes says, for everything there is a season. You say, it's tax season. <laughs> it's allergy season. It's basketball season. I've got to season the steak on the barbie. Besides, I don't have time to change the world. Goethe tells us of the genius, the power, and the magic in boldness. You say, but what difference could I make anyway? The foxes are guarding the hen house. The juggernaut's out of control. We're all just snowflakes in the wind. The mountain asks, which snowflake falling will be the one to send down the avalanche, changing this entire landscape? <laughs> Larry, thank you so much for being here. You've been listening to a conversation with Larry Robinson and Erwin Keller. Thank you for joining us at the New School at Commonweal. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Chiani. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-E. W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook.